This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 37. And the quote of the day is from Abraham Lincoln, who said, My great concern is not whether you have failed, but whether you're content with your failure. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? It's Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Thanks for checking it out. And drummers, do you want to become a better drummer? If so, download my ebook, Stick Control Variations. It's 11 creative exercises to improve your chops and your independence fast. And it's normally $9.99, and you can get it for free if you sign up for the mailing list at drummersresource.com. The interview that we have today is an amazing interview, and I'm so happy to have him here. We have Lil John Roberts, and he is one of my big influences, and a lot of people who I've interviewed on the show, like Brian Fraser Moore and Spanky, they both have cited Lil John as their influence as well, and he is just he's just a who's who in the drumming world, and he's just a super nice guy and a monster of a player. I want to tell you a little bit about him. This is from his website. One of the most sought-after jazz and R&B drummers of his generation, Lil John Roberts has maintained his status in the industry as the ultimate heartbeat. A native of Philadelphia, John quickly became known as a child prodigy, playing alongside of Christian McBride and Joey DeFrancesco at the age of 16. Collectively, the trio was also part of the Duke Ellington Orchestra, a project directed by Wynton Marsalis, composed of 22 of the country's best young jazz musicians. Just listen to some of the people that he's played with over the years. Stevie Wonder. Quincy Jones, Prince, Sheila E., Mary J. Blige, Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson, Elton John, Al Green, B.B. King, Paula Abdul, Yolanda Adams, Neo. It, like it just it, like the list just keeps going on and on and on. And it's 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 just amazing the the different people that he's played with and the different styles of music that he's that he's performed over the years. And you would never know by talking to him because he's just like the humblest dude in the world. So it's awesome to have him on the show today. And let's get right into it. I'm not going to waste any more time. The one and only Lil John Roberts. John, what's happening, man? Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Nick. Thanks for hitting me up. Absolutely, man. Like we were talking about, we got to keep the we got to keep the Philly cats coming in. Absolutely, man. It's a big family of us. I know. I know. Especially I'm trying to drummers. I know. I know. I'm still trying to get Quest Love on here, too. So, Quest. Uh, if you, good if, luck with that. Yeah. If you're out, th- <laughs> Quest, if you're out there, uh, you know, give me give me a call. He, he, probably, he probably has my number. <laughs> right. He's a pretty busy guy. No, I know. I know. I'm proud so, of him. No, he's he's doing he's doing great things. Did, so, did you guys? Did, are you guys around the same age? Did you guys come up together? Yeah, we did. Actually, he went to Kappa, and I went to Overbrook, and we both winded up playing in All City Jazz Band together with Chris McBride. Oh, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, we were just talking to you. Were you and uh, Joey D. Francesco and Chris McBride all played together, right? Yeah, we had a trio together. We did a lot of. Um, downbeat competitions we won maybe two or three years consecutive with downbeat back then awesome uh and then right after that um joey got called to go out with miles davis (laughs) and uh, (laughs) And he was like 17 right and then me and chris we wind up going to uh to he went to the new school and i went to berkeley school for a while yeah did you ever hear the story about how joey got that gig with miles um kind of sort of but you could tell me your version <laughs> well the the phone calls so miles uh, miles davis kept while. calling his house okay and his sister kept answering the phone mm-hmm. and she's like and he's like hi i'm looking for joey and she's like oh he's not here or whatever okay can you tell miles davis called? she's like yeah, yeah whatever and so <laughs> so like he called like three or four times and then finally she was like some dude davis or miles somebody keeps calling you <laughs> <laughs> they're like man what? no i didn't hear that story but that's hilarious yeah. <laughs> so then you know the, you know the rest is history but like oh my god can you imagine if 10 years later he finds out he missed the gig you know right exactly <laughs> that's crazy though but i remember when he when he got the gig and miles gave him his trumpet and you yeah. know all that kind of stuff it was a real big deal when that happened yeah we man were very happy for him yep that's great so yeah. so you had, you know, before the trio and everything, how did you get into drumming? How did you start playing and, and you know, to, to make this massive career? You got to start somewhere. So where'd you start? 
Yeah, well, a lot of us, you know, Philly and a lot of other cities, you know, we started in church, a lot of us. Um, my dad was is a pastor still today. He has a church that's on uh, in North, North Philadelphia called um, the Garden of Prayer World Prayer Center. But actually, like even myself and Brian Moore, we both came up playing in church together. Like mm -hmm. we, um, all, both of our churches used to fellowship together a lot. So we would see each other occasionally. And uh, it was always a, a fun time, you know, just sharing uh, the drum seat. You know, we'd switch and play on different songs or his choir would play and my choir would play. So, you know, we'd sit right behind each other and just watch each other play through church. So that's where it all kind of started. You know, for me, at when I was 10 years old, all of my uncles played drums. So it was just like a second nature for me to jump on after, you know, playing percussion when you couldn't play the drums because they were playing. You know, the next thing was to jump on some congas or, you know, some timbales or whatever like that. So, you know, I got acclimated pretty quick. And then when I had a chance to sit down on the set, you know, that's when I started, like, you know, getting into it more. So at, when you were at that young age, um, how old were you when you started playing? At 10. At 10. So mm -hmm. is it at that point you're like, this is what I want to do forever? Or was it just more of a hobby then? Nah, that was definitely what I wanted to do. I was very much attracted to, to drums and percussion at that age, yeah. And and it, I knew that that is what I wanted to do as a career. You know, I always find interesting that you're saying, you know, you used to, you and Brian Fraser Moore and, and uh, you know, Quest and all you guys grew up together and and we're kind of playing together at the same time and it's it always seems like there's these clusters of people that go on to do great things like you'll you'll hear of athletes that they're like oh yeah like two star athletes were like roommates in you <laughs> right. know in high school yeah. or i mean in college or or oh yeah we grew up right down the street from each other and do you think that that your level of playing was affected by that because you had Brian there and because you had quest there and you have all these people. So everybody's kind of pushing each other. So it's almost like there's something in the water. Absolutely. I mean, we, we had like, you know, that camaraderie and then we had the, you know, the competition thing as well to try to be the best, but we all had our own different styles, you know, like quest had his style. He quest even back then, you know, Amir, uh, we used to, uh, <laughs> He's, we used to hang out and he'd always be listening to James Brown, which, you know, cultivated his style at sure. an early age. You know, like the way he plays hip hop and everything. A lot of that is stemmed from listening to Clyde and Jabbo, you know, all of that James Brown stuff that he was listening to. But, you know, even like when we were um, in uh, jazz, All City Jazz Band, he'd come with his headphones on and stuff. And Mr. Whitaker, uh, Bill Whitaker was our teacher. He'd always tell quest to take his uh his his earphones off so he could learn the, the jazz stuff that we were doing <laughs> i thought you were gonna say take the pick out of his head <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i don't think he had the pick back then actually amir what was his hair looking like back then i can't even remember <laughs> it's been so long but yeah we we pushed each other a lot and um he wasn't playing a whole lot of jazz back like straight ahead swinging stuff back then he was he would be the guy that would play the Buddy Rich songs, like the funky Buddy Rich songs or whatever like that. Right. We'd actually be kind of trying to fight over, you know, charts like, I want to play this song. You know? Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, but after a while, we, we you know, became to we, we became really good friends from all of that. And, you know, like we all we respect each other for our different styles. Me and Brian have a very similar style, you know, as far as if you listen to us, um, because we, you know, we were influ influenced a lot from each other and from the same people that we were listening to at the time. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So where did your, where did your straight ahead chops come from? Because that wasn't, you didn't get that in church. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and thank God my dad was, uh, was liberal enough to let me, re you know, branch out and play other music outside of gospel music. So, you know, he, he was just wanted me to succeed and whatever I needed to do to do that, he allowed me to go and do it, like especially the jazz world. And um, I'm, we used to do the Mellon Jazz Festival a lot in Philly. I remember back in the day and, um, you know, Penn's Landing and uh, the Academy of Music that we would go do shows at. And when Marcellus and all of those guys would come all the time and I would hang out with Jeff Tane Watts, mm -hmm. you know, and because Wynton took us under his wing, when we were, you know, at that early age and he would tell us, like, especially me, he said, 
you know, you need to check out Tane and watch how he does this, that, and the other. And then also Hurl and Raleigh, you know, those two were going back and forth with Wenton and Branford at that time. So I was hanging out a lot, you know, just checking out, not even get, I never got a lesson with Jeff or, or Hurling, but just hanging around them and sitting behind stage, you know, right off the side of the drums was a, a lesson for me in itself. So Jeff Tane Watts was one of the most inspirational, you know, jazz drummers for me at that time period. Nice. Yeah, yeah because- he, even, he even gave me my first stick bag. I, I saw um, I saw one of his stick bags at his gig. It was a sweet Reunion Blues leather, maroon leather bag. And I said, man, I would love to have a bag like that one day. And he said, really? And he just took his sticks out, put them in, you know, wherever he, uh, his book bag or something like that. And he just gave me the stick bag. And I'll never forget that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's a yep. good story. That was real cool of him. Yep. You know, like how many people? How many people would you do that for today? <laughs> right, right. You'd be like, you know how much that stick bag costs? <laughs> right, <laughs> a reunion blues leather bag. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's nuts. Yeah. You know, I I always find it fascinating that that drummers like yourself can play so many so many different styles and play them well because you know now a lot of guys are like, well, I'm a jazz guy or I'm a funk guy or I'm a rock guy or whatever. But you're so you're so well rounded, um, which which to me, you know, I, I think is where what's gotten you as far as you've gone. Um, just just your ability to play any sort of style. What advice do you have for people that are out there that are trying to be a more well rounded player, like somebody right now that's just a rock guy or whatever? Yeah, well, I would definitely you know encourage cats to play as many styles as possible. I mean, I might not be great at every style, but I can at least play it. You know, I can even if I don't want to say fake it because I, I that's not a good term. But right. like if I'm a play rock, you know, I might not sound like a uh, 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 Taylor Hawkins or whatever the way that he because Taylor Hawkins actually we went to Berkeley together too. Oh, did you? <laughs> but um, Taylor <laughs> Hawkins like he's a killing rock drummer, you know and right. I can't even front and say that I play on the level of a Taylor Hawkins, but if I, you know, if I'm challenged to do a gig like that, I can pull it off, you know, but sure. it might not be the total authentic rock drummer, just like Taylor could sit back behind the drums and I know he can play straight ahead swing, but he might not sound like, you know, a Jeff Watts or, or you know, Erlen, Eric Harlan or whatever. Like he won't sound authentic like that, but he can at least get by playing it, you know? Right. Right. So, right. but I, 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 I you know, I kind of when I went to Berkeley, you know, I was attracted to a lot of different styles of music and a lot of the cats that I was hanging out with, you know, they were from Brazil and they were from, you know, the the, the mega death crew. And, you know, like that, those guys that listened to all of those, you know, heavy blast beats and all that kind of like I used to hang out with each type of drummer. So, you know, it kind of fell on me to just learn, you know, at least some of it. So if I ever had to do it. I could pull it off, you know, without sounding like, you know, crap. Right, right. <laughs> you know, Omar Hakim was a big um, influence on me. And, you know, I kind of patterned a lot of my style after him. And then, it, then Dennis Chambers was another guy that I studied a lot, with, you know, from listening to and hanging out with. Never had a lesson from any of these guys. But like I said, just hanging out with them was was a lesson in itself. And just the hang and all of that, you know, it just rubbed off on me. Um, the fusion stuff, you know, Will Kennedy, a lot of guys like that. So I was listening to each type individual at school or, or the mentors that I was hanging around. Roy Haynes was there. You know, I got a chance to hang out with him a lot at Rawls Jazz Club. Steve oh, Smith, man. I used to open up for Steve Smith a lot, which who I just saw not too long ago playing with Zakir Hussein. And um, like, you know, I just took a lot of different styles from these guys and, and incorporated it into my thing. Makes sense, man. So, yeah, I would definitely push cats to, to do that. And then, you know, you limit yourself, you know, gig wise. If, if you get called to do a country gig, like, you know, hopefully you'll be able to pull that off. You know, listen to the country style and how they do stuff, how they play their fills. Because country music is simple, but it's really complex, too. Right. And I had to learn that, you know, like doing some sessions and things like, you know, some of the producers were actually showing me like, John, this is how. They love the way I play, but they were like, John, if we play this song, this is how I want you to approach it. Like, listen to these guys and how they play their fills, you know, because some of it didn't make sense to me. But then when I figured it out, when they told me, I was like, oh, OK, mm. this makes sense to how the song is written. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's 
and and you're talking about limiting limiting yourself gig wise. It's definitely better to say no to a gig that you can't play than to say yes and go and sound horrible. Man, uh, mm-hmm. Yogi Horton was the was the best guy to say that on one of his old DVDs, one of his Yamaha DVDs. If you check it out, he'll tell you he's like, man, there were sometimes I you know I felt like the gig wasn't for me. And I would just tell them like, hey man, you should call Steve Gadd or you should call such and such to do this because this isn't really my particular style. So it's better to just do that than to go out there and, and look like a fool, you know, trying right. to play something that you know isn't up your alley. Right, 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 right. There's some gigs now, like today, um, like certain gigs that I just feel like that's not me because like I'm not a choppy, choppy drummer. You know, I, I know a lot of chop drummers, and and they're some of them are best friends of mine. Aaron Spears and mm-hmm. a lot of these cats, Tony Royster. Like when it calls for those kind of gigs, I almost tell people like, look, if you're looking for all of that, I'm not <laughs> the guy to do to call for that because I'm not going to be chopping all through the show. <laughs> right, that's right. just not my thing. I don't I don't choose to do that. If I wanted to, I could. You know, of course, I'd have to shed more and and, and really practice. You know, to 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 be a chopper through a, you know, a whole show like that. But, you know, I pick my spots. Like there's times right. when I go off and then there's times where I just want to play the groove, you know? So sometimes that might be boring to some artists and they might be like, no, nah, I need more. I need more, 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 right. you know? And then I would say, you know, I've never done it yet, but I've been in certain situations where I felt like, okay, if I ever got called to do this gig with this guy, you know, I would basically say, you know what? let me give you such and such number and you call him. Cause I think he would be the best person for this gig. Right. And that's a sign of, of humility and professionalism in itself that they'll say, man, this cat is, is professional enough to suggest somebody else for the gig that we're calling him on. We'll definitely call this guy again. If we have something that's in his wheelhouse. Yeah, man, I'm not going to be a fool and, and hang myself. <laughs> you know, you just got to know, man. You got to know what your, where your alley is, man. And and, I, and it makes me feel better when I play gigs that I know is for me. You know, I'm right. like, man, certain gigs, I just be like, man, this is my gig right here. You know, like. So certain, what is like, your, yeah. what's your, what's your gig? Like, what's your wheelhouse? If somebody was like, you can have, you know, you can do play this for the rest of your life. What would you do? Man, I mean, I love the pop stuff. I love playing Janet's music. I had a great time doing that that kind of stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, sh- Janet likes it real solid and then still, you know, some nice licks in between, but not too much. She don't like a whole lot of drum flash going on. You know, she just right. likes you playing the track just like Jimmy and Terry and them, you know, produced it or whatever, whoever produced, you know, the songs that she does, you know, because she's a real drum-heavy girl, like... Even with Michael, you know, Michael and Janet, like their timing is just impeccable. So like she could tell you every drum pattern and everything, if you're playing it right or not. Like she got me a few times in rehearsal, like, John, that's not the pattern. Can you play it like such and such? And I was like, whoa, you know, just like thrown off. Like the snare goes like, you know, like she tells me that in rehearsal, I'm like, oh, like the first time she did that, it just surprised me. I was like, you cannot fool Janet Jackson with no rhythms. Right. <laughs> First of all, because she's heard the songs a million times in the studio, so sure. she knows every nuance of the song, you know, from the bass line to the key parts to the, you know, every drum and percussion loop. And she mm-hmm. can sing it with her mouth, you know. Right. So even Michael, like I played on a track for Michael one time, and, and I, you know, it sounded, you know, I was like, man, this percussion track is is so dope. Like who programmed this or whatever? And his music director at the time, Brad Buxter, was like, that's Michael. He's he's doing it with his mouth. I'm like, what? Really? Like shakers, you know, like some of the little snare sounds and stuff. Like she, he was doing all of that stuff because Michael was a dope beatboxer. And if you listen, if you go look at some YouTube videos, you know, you can see Michael talking with Oprah or some interviews like that. And they ask him, you know, we hear that you're a great beatboxer, and he, you, you could see him demonstrating his beatbox because all those tracks that Michael did, you know, Dangerous Records and stuff that he did with Teddy Riley and all, he started that with his mouth, like the bass lines, you know, like he sang all of that really? stuff, and then Teddy would go in and, and or whoever the producer was would go and, and program what Michael was singing and beatboxing first. Wow. Yeah, so so Janet was just. Did you play with Michael too, or just Janet? I I worked in the studio with Michael, and then he also asked me to to go on tour with him f- for the Invincible record when that was out around two thousand. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I had just gotten off the road from doing Velvet Rope Tour with Janet, like the whole year, 98 and all like that. And, um, you know, we had some time off and I had a chance to to work on my own record. And we were right in the middle of a contract and all that kind of stuff with my band, The Chronicle in Atlanta. And um, I was with Jermaine Dupri. I was signed to one of his side labels, um, him and his um, his engineer at the time, Phil Tan, who's worked on everybody's records yeah. in the industry. Um, we were signed to their label, Anunnaki. And um, right in between that tour with Janet and when Invincible Record was coming out, Michael hit me from the studio with Brad Buxter and said, you know, John, you know, Michael wants to see if you're interested in coming out, you know, to go on tour with him. And I was just done. Like, what? I remember sitting (laughs) in my car talking to them that night and, and I was just freaked out. And at the same time, I was like, I can't do it. Oh, my God. In my head, I'm like, I can't go out with Michael right now. I'm I'm bind to a contract right now with a record right. deal you know and i need i have to finish this record you know before i do anything else again you know so i had to tell him i was like man this is an opportunity of a lifetime and i would love to do it but i i can't because i'm under contract with this record deal you know uh. so i i kick myself you know every now and then just thinking about like wow i said no to michael you know when i right. really should have just went ahead and at least done something with him you <laughs> can, know, I, can I just do one gig i'll just do one gig right just one gig <laughs> just to say i went on I, I played on stage with michael at least right. once you know michael's only had two drummers in his career pretty much you know outside of you know the earlier days but right you know, it was jonathan moffitt and, and ricky lawson yeah. you know so that that just would have been a really historical thing for me to have done. And like I say, I kicked myself for just, you know, turning it down, man. But it was it was an honor to, to be just even asked to to play with Michael. Like he sure. really dug from what I understood. He dug the way that I played, you know, because like I said, Michael's a really serious rhythmic cat. And he he came to see me play when I was with Janet in South Africa. I actually met him in the mall during the day, you know, not knowing he was in town, but I heard rumors that he was coming Mm -hmm. and he was in a KB toy store. And I just happened to walk in there (laughs) and his security, everybody was like kind of surrounded around the store. And I'm like, why is everybody hanging out near this store or whatever? I go inside. Michael's in there like checking out toys and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So I got a chance to talk to him and, and I was like. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm little John. You know, I played on the song that you did for Korea and all. He's like, yes. He's like, and I, heard, you know, I know that you're playing with Janet, so I can't wait to see you play tonight and all like that. So, you know, we were already kind of starting a relationship with each other without me even really realizing it. You know, right, right. And um, but yeah, man, I, I wish I, I had done something with him live on stage. That would have been great. Hey, man, the call came through, so at least there's that. You know, yeah, man. And- you know, it's a good position to be in to be like, well, I can't go on tour with Michael. Man, you what? <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> you know, I got a call with for James Brown one time like that too, and um, you know, it, I got called at the time where we had those uh, voicemail um, pagers. Like, no, it was a recorder, like at home, you know, to to a phone, you know, the the phone recorders. Oh, like, like a you, like an answering machine. Right, answer machine. That's what we're so about. we're like, what's that thing called with the tape? Right. With the thing that you... with the tape on it. You had to rewind was it. The it little tape. The little tape. Right. Yeah, and yeah. and then what it was back then, I, you couldn't really retrieve the messages from your phone. You had to go home and get the message. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got home like two or three days later. I was in L.A. doing some record dates, and I came home and I got a message. Little John, Mr. Brown wants you at rehearsal. He wants to see if you can come play with the band. We need an extra drummer. You know, so it was his MD who sounded a lot like James Brown. I forgot his name. He played guitar. Um, I'm going to find out his name because he was real cool. He he actually lived between Atlanta and Macon, and he was, you know, running James' band. Right. And he hit me up. He said, James Brown wants you to come and rehearse with, with us, and, you know, we needed another drummer because the drummer, our second drummer, couldn't make some of the gigs that was coming up. I got the message two or three days later after rehearsal was supposed to start. So I call him back. I'm like, hey, man. I'm down, you know, in my mind. I'm like, I don't care how much money he's paying, right, whatever. Right. I just want to go play with James yeah. Brown. Once. I'll pay you. <laughs> exactly. For So, for you know, any drummer in their right mind would want to play with James Brown at least once, you know, yeah. just to play some of that stuff, you know. And I know Amir would have been tripping if I – I don't think I told him about that either because he's a James Brown fanatic. So, I'm sure he would have taken the opportunity to play with James as well. Absolutely. And I, I, he might have, uh, have done it before James passed away. 
But um, man, that was another call that I was just like, oh my God, I missed that call like two, three days later, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was another great opportunity that I could have had. <laughs> man. But but you have, I mean, you've taken you've taken a lot of good calls. You've taken a lot of a lot of huge, huge gigs, man. Yeah, man. And when you ask me about, you know, the kind of gig that I, you know, that I feel is tailored to me, like the Janet thing. You know, another one that I would love to have done is a Peter Gabriel gig, you know, because oh, I, I love Peter Gabriel, man. I love Manu Kache, how he played yeah. that stuff. You know, I, I, I studied that stuff when it came out, when your eyes came out and Sledgehammer, all of that stuff. I was just like, man, this sounds like a gig that I would really love to be on stage playing. So I was that, reading this article about not to cut you off. I was reading this article about Sledgehammer, about how they recorded the bass line on it. Mm -hmm. And apparently they just they recorded it like three three or four times and there was slight variations in like you know in tempo and feel and all and they just put all four of the tracks together uh, and that's that how they got sense. that's how they got like this big thick bass sound on it wow that kind of makes sense because the way that the, the track sounds it sounds like there was some manipulation going on there some kind of way like yeah. just even how manu was playing the beat it sounded like the bass and the drums weren't like tracked together or something. Like it was, it just had a different feel. The bass had a different feel than the drums on it. Yeah, the bass feels like it sounds like real rubbery, you know? Right. It's it's great. I love it, you know? But yeah, like, and how did Manu, they get that? Yeah, Manu's playing like a, a shuffled hi hat with a straight kick and snare beat on mm -hmm. the back beat, you know? So the, the, the hi hat is really pulled back, but the kick and the snare is up front. Yeah. Like if you listen back to it again, you'll hear how he's playing like boom. Like the hi hat is being swung like crazy. Right. <laughs> I love that, man. I love that. You know, like the the straight swung stuff. It's like the the uh, uh, what's that James Brown tune? Um, uh, why can't I think of it? It's uh, mm, I got. I can hear. I can hear it in my head. I can't think of the name. Ba -da -da -da, ba -da -da. Oh, what the heck oh uh, yeah what's i forget what it's called i'll look i'm gonna look it up while we're still talking yeah so i can figure I know, out what i know the, i know the melody what you're saying though it's it's uh, think it's from think is it is the song called think though um well think is the is the what's her name um uh, we are both brain farting right now. I know. But there's a lady that the, the, the JB's played behind, and she did that. You better think. That's not that song. Though. You're not thinking about another one. But that's, Yeah, that's it. What's the name of that tune? I think that might be called Think, too. Yeah, I think the record's called Think, isn't it? Oh, uh, okay. I'm not sure, but I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like a real juke joint swinging type. Yeah, it's like between, it's like half shuffle, half straight. Here, hold yeah, on. Yeah, that thing, that thing swings so hard. Here we go. <laughs> the, James, the James Brown quasi shuffle. Hold on, let's see. <laughs> I got, I got Zorro on here. Can you hear this? Nope, I don't hear any music if you're playing it. No, okay. Yeah, this is, hold on, let's see. Oh, all right. It is. All right. It. Let's see. It's James Brown. James Brown and the Famous Flames. Think. Ah, yeah. Yeah. So I'll I'll uh I'll put this video on the on the show notes of the for every podcast I do a show notes page. I'll put this tune on there so that people can check it out. It's just like it. It has like that swung. It's it's in between swung and straight man. It's just a killer killer groove. Hell yeah. Killer groove. <laughs> so we were talking i want to backtrack a little bit we were talking about all these all these huge tours that you've done and all these phone calls that start coming in and i know that a lot of people out there are like man i play you know i, I play in church or i play in in bands around town and i want to i want to do that i want to do what you did and i want to tour and i want to play with bigger name artists how would you suggest that they do that or how would you do it now if if you weren't who you are Mm -hmm. Man, I get those questions in my inboxes and, and on on Facebook and everything like every day asking me, how can I get in? How can I get put on? And, you know, like, and I understand people asking that question, but when I was younger, I never really asked anybody, how can I get put on? I just right. made myself available in places that I knew that I would get 
you know, an opportunity from. Like I did so many different things, man. You would you would wouldn't believe the kind of gigs that I took, you know, coming up. Um, I mean, Motown stuff. I was doing the drifters, the uh coasters, I was doing some temptation stuff. Um, I was doing some reggae bands. Like I was playing in so many different situations. First of all, because I needed the money. Sure. Right. <laughs> you know, I had to pay rent at school. And then um, and then the other thing was that I wanted to experience different styles of music. So I got into these different bands, you know, either I got paid good or I didn't get paid almost nothing at all. You know, but the experience was, you know, was uh, the thing that I needed. And I, I would just tell cats to like, man, just put yourself in different situations as much as you can. And then eventually something will click and you'll get heard by the right person. Hopefully, you know, that's usually what happens. Like I played in clubs before and, and Mars Day or somebody will walk in and hear me playing and be like, hey, man, you know, I want to talk to you about doing some gigs and stuff. You know, like Mars hit right. me up years ago from Atlanta. When, when, when I moved to Atlanta, I was playing at this place called the Yin Yang Cafe. And that's where my band, The Chronicle, used to play like every Thursday nights. <clears throat> and even when I was on tour, I'd come home and, and that would still be gone. We did it for a good five, four or five years straight. And um, like people like Mars Day would come in and they'd be sitting in the back near the bar. And I wouldn't know they were even in there until after the first set or whatever. And, you know, somebody would bring me over and say, hey, man, Mars Day's hanging out. And he's like, man, he loves your playing. And, you know, so things like that, people would just show up and, and you never know who's, you know, listening. So right. I would tell cats to put yourself in those positions as much as you can. Like, go hang out at the jam sessions. Go you know, try to sit in in the open mics and stuff like you just don't know who'll be in the room that you might be able to get an opportunity from. But don't don't expect um, someone to just put a gig in your lap. You know, like right. you really got to go out there if you want it that bad. You know, I'm I'm a prime example of it. Like I wanted it bad. So I went out there and 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 hustle to be heard, you know, hustle right. to be heard. That's the phrase right there. Man, I'm, right, I'm <laughs> writing that down right now. I <laughs> saw this thing the other day that said, hustle until you no longer have to introduce yourself. Yeah, man. I, I mean, that. like, you know, I don't want to um, make anybody feel bad, but I just get tired of cats asking me, man, how can I get put on? I'm like, you got to put yourself on, right. you know, like it's millions of people out here. Like, and I just happen to be lucky, uh, Nick, I just happen to be lucky, you know, to, to be picked out of the millions of drummers out in the world that could have had my gig. I was just at the right place at the right time. I was prepared. You know, I practiced my butt off at school. You know, when I was at Berkeley, I practiced six to eight hours a day. Had to be. You know, I didn't really have much of a life. And then I would be playing at a club that night. And then I have to go to class the next morning after playing all night or rehearsing all day. So I was, you know, I was beat. Like, there was one time I worked so hard that I had to go to the hospital because I was just run down and not, you know, keeping myself healthy, not eating enough. You know, like I was just rolling. I was skinny. I was super skinny back then. <laughs> so, you know, I, if I wasn't eating properly and stuff like that, you know, I would just fall out, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> so there was a time where I was just really, really going so hard that, you know, that happened. And I had to just balance things out a little better. But, man, I went hard, man. When I went to Berkeley, in my mind, I was like, I am going to be successful. You right. know, and that I, I wouldn't take no for an answer. I was just, I, you know, I, I made sure I was in the right places at the right times, man. You know, well, being at the right place at the right time, it, it reminds me of that quote that luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Absolutely. You know? And it's like you could be at the right place at the right time and they'd be like, hey, man, uh, let's see you're playing. And then you, you're horrible. And they're like, ah, well, now we'll get somebody else. Exactly. You know, it's like all those all those hours and hours and hours that you sped spent shedding and and working on your craft so that when the opportunity arises, yes, you're ready. Like the you're ready. I don't know if you've ever heard the Les Brown quote that uh, it's, it's better to be prepared for an opportunity and not have one than have an opportunity and not be prepared for it. Absolutely. You know? And I was prepared. Like, for Janet, for instance, when that call came, you know, I was really not really known that well. I mean, my name was getting out there. A lot of people was talking. But I wasn't Omar Hakeem, and I wasn't all these other cats. Sonny Emery, who's another friend of mine. These guys were doing all the biggest pop gigs around that time. And I was filling in for Jonathan Moffat. Like, right. what? <laughs> That's unheard of. Like, he, you know, Jonathan's played for everybody. Elton John and, 
you know, uh, 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 what's his name from um, uh, George Michael. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm like, that. I just, I really lucked up on that, you know. But but at the same time, I was ready for that gig, man. Like I was, my chops were ready. I had the right frame of mind how to approach that kind of a gig, you know, because I could have been 23 years old jumping on that, just going off trying to show every lick I could do. But I was 23 with the mind frame of let me play this music with the best pocket, with the best fills, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. And then I kind of studied how Jonathan played it too. And I said, okay, let me add to what Jonathan's already done to this gig. Cause you know, I felt like it needed a little more extra stuff to it. And when mm-hmm. I did that, you know, everybody's eyes kind of bulged out like, wow, the feel just got different, you know, <laughs> like, right. because I added a little extra spice to it that I felt like, OK, I think this is going to take the gig to another level. Mm-hmm. And it worked, you know, not all the time will it work, but this time it did. And she like she loved it and the dancers loved it. So, you know, I was prepared for that situation. So speaking of preparation and you're saying that. You know, I want to play in the pocket. And I want to play this music the way that it's that it's supposed to be played. So it's kind of a two part question. But one, what what was your what was your practice regimen, and what was your what what would you suggest? Um, you know, people could practice to to because you you play very. Uh, what am I? What am I trying to say here? You're very uh, articulate in everything that you play. It do, you're not playing anything by accident. So so how did you develop that that uh? that precision and you know that that pocket that you have is just insane dig it man i i I, um i just used to listen to patterns a lot that was my biggest thing was patterns you know like even when i listen to other cats play and i hear them play a certain song that i'm familiar with or whatever i'm like yeah they sound good but they're not playing the actual pattern from the record you know which is a lot of the times the patterns are programmed anyway so you know, sometimes some of those patterns are kind of hard for a drummer to, to reproduce, you know, but it was that was my thing was to go in and figure out how I can play this pattern as authentic as the producer, you know, recorded it and produced it, you know. So when I go practicing things like that, my first, you know, approach was how can I make this snare sound exactly like the way that they program the snare or how can I make the kick drum pattern, you know, match exactly you know, what the drum machine is doing, like even the hi-hat patterns, you know, because sometimes we'll play a beat and the hi-hat pattern will not be anything close to what it was programmed, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> right. we're just we're just keeping time on the hi-hat, not really realizing that there's different sequences going on on the hi-hat, you know, mm-hmm. outside of what the kick and the snare is doing. So my approach was let me play this song or whatever that I'm doing is close to, you know, what was produced. You know, so I would listen to Omar, you know, play with Sting's band and, you know, Night of the Blue Turtles, that kind of stuff. Like, I just listened to Vinny, you know, just intricate patterns that a lot of these cats will play. Steve Jordan, you know, I used to listen Mm -hmm. to a lot of the Steve Jordan stuff back then, just the way his snare sounded. Like, I, I would listen to the nuances of the drums, like not just play the drums, but listen to how the snare was tuned how tight it was, how much, you know, muffling was on it. Was was it no muffling? Steve Jordan used to play a lot of tracks with no muffling on his snare, and it'd just be like, God, you know? Right, like, right. It would just be obnoxious, but the way that he played it was so funky that it just fit. Like, for instance, like the song Ramblin' on um, Dave Sanborn's album. Mm-hmm. If you listen back to Ramblin', the way that he plays that groove, it's kind of like a... Um, uh, it takes two to make things all right. Right. You know, just like that's like everything. the I don't. That's like the I don't know how to play drums. Drum beat. That's exactly like you know when people sit down. They're like I don't know how to play drums. What should I do? And they go boom, doom, doom, And then you take somebody like Steve Jordan, plays that groove, and it sounds like a million bucks. Exactly. But you know. yeah, when you listen to all the nuances of that of how he played it you know you want to try to emulate that because that's what made the song hot was the way he played that you know mm-hmm. so I, I did a lot of that when I was practicing you know um, you know there were certain licks that I would hear and I would go in and just try to dissect them you know I would dissect stuff that's a good word for it like almost being in a lab and I'd set my drums up and I'd say today I'm going to dissect how Steve Gadd played you know 50 ways to leave your lover or right. 
Today, I'm going to dissect the way that Dennis Chambers played, you know, uh, Knee Deep with P-Funk live. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, my God, if you ever listen to how Dennis played with P-Funk, you know, Dennis even told me that the way reason why he played it like that was because he had, they had a percussionist, and then he either he got fired or he quit, <clears throat> and the percussion rig was still there on, you know, on the tour. So Dennis just had his tech pull the stuff over on the left side of him. He pulled the timbales, he pulled the cowbell, he had like the splash that he was playing. And if you listen back to or go look at YouTube with Dennis playing with P Funk. It sounded like him and the percussionist were playing together, but he was playing all that stuff on the left side while he was playing the groove. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so crazy, man. Like, if you listen to... Um, yeah. And he's doing all this... You know, like, on top of the beat. I was like, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> you know, and he's just going off, man, with, with the rhythms on top of the beat, man. It's just stupid man because he's dennis chambers he can do that exactly you know? but i i definitely tried to emulate that stuff man even we had a funk band called the disciples of funk back at berkeley and we did these calf shows you know at the cafeteria we used to call them berkeley calf shows and we did one show that was just dedicated to all p-funk stuff somebody got a nice. video of it out there somewhere nice. and uh and we were playing some of that stuff man you couldn't tell me i wasn't dennis chambers that night <laughs> <laughs> I was playing that stuff verbatim, man. <laughs> Did you ever see the Bootsy Collins video of him talking about the one? Yes. He's like, what? It's what? There's the, right there. There's the one. Right. <laughs> He's and like, I had a chance to play with Bootsy, man. That was, man, that was amazing, man. We we did uh, I Want to Be With You. Uh, I'd Rather Be With You. And we did um, um, Blame It On You. We did a bunch of stuff from from his record, man. A lot of the funk stuff. Actually, um, Omar played with him on that Dave Sanborn show one time, too. And that was crazy. Have you you remember that Dave Sanborn show Friday Friday sessions or yeah, something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Man, yep. I wish they would have another show like that today. Me too, man. I learned a lot from that show, and they had so much, a lot of diverse cats, you know, a lot of diverse artists play on there, you know, with the band. Like Hiram Bullock was in the band, and Omar Hakeem, and you know, Philippe Sais, and a lot of dope band members were in that band, man. So that was a great TV show. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, uh, um, I've lost my train of thought. So, but when, so we're talking about all this stuff, all these, all the the positive things that that you were doing, uh, getting these gigs and and you know shedding all the time and everything. But there's definitely hurdles, and I'm sure that you've had some some doors slammed in your face and and some uh, some failures that you had to overcome. So, what were some challenges that you overcame? Because it's not easy to get to where you got. Man, to tell you the truth, there weren't too many doors slammed in my face, Nick. I can't even lie. Um, I, and I, I can't even think of anything at this point right now, like setbacks or anything like that. Like, man, I was really blessed to have went from one stage of my life where, you know, I did the gospel stuff. And, you know, I, I, I was known for some earlier gospel record recordings and stuff that people still listen to now every now and then. You know, I heard somebody posted something on Facebook not too long ago of some stuff that we did in Philly. Um, my uncle, Steve Ford, you know, he was great music director with the Winans and um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Richard Smallwood and a lot of stuff like that in Philly. Um, we, we were all raised up under him. Brian, myself, James Poyser, um, Omar Edwards, Adam Blackstone, like all the cats in Philly, we all came up under Steve Ford and all these guys, these great musicians. Uh, Garfield Williams, who was our favorite drummer back then, that played on a lot of the gospel records that we, you know, respected. And, um, you know, we just kind of walked in a cool path, man. And, like, from the gospel for me to the jazz, meeting Went Marcellus, meeting Miles Davis, all that at an early age, moving right. on, getting a scholarship to Berkeley. You know, like the timeline, just the things that happened, man. I was just really blessed in my career to to have gone in the timeline that it went. Um, leaving Berkeley, moving to the South to Atlanta, meeting Jermaine Dupree, meeting Dallas Austin, working with all of their groups, Escape, Monica. Like, you know, I could go, I could go through a whole story book of how my life went with this, you know, going from one gig to the next. And it really was just fate. And and destiny and and good luck, <laughs> yeah, you know. But and I, tremendous and tremendous skill too. 
Yes, that helps too. <laughs> you know, ninety uh, a lot of it. You know, ninety percent of it is is how you carry yourself. You know, and and the character that you have, and the respect, your reputation. You know, how you your professionalism. You know, it's it's a lot outside of just being able to play. You know, like mm -hmm. that's a great thing because there's a lot of great players out here that just didn't get the right opportunities, and some of them messed up you know sure. with the opportunities they they could have gotten further but their either their attitude was wrong or their work ethics was wrong you know like all of that stuff means a lot like they'll take somebody that's not as good as you that will be there on time that will be you know proficient like like just having everything together organized you know they'll take that drummer over you know, somebody that's just, oh, my God, just amazing, but shows up late, you know, has the worst attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, I could name names, but I won't. <clears throat> but I know cats that are awesome, better drummers than me, you know, but got into situations and just got fired and got bad reputations. Mm -hmm. And at this point, we'll never get another call ever again because their name is so bad in the industry, you right. know? Right. You're, so you're about the 30th too. person that has said that in these interviews, you know, and it's it's. No matter how good you are, if you're a jerk and nobody wants to work with you, they're going to be like, you know what? I'm going to call this guy right down the street that's as good as you, if not better than you, and is cooler. Right. You know, he may even be worse than you, but he's cooler right. than you, he's and we got to we got to live on a bus with this guy for six months. Right. You yeah. Know. Nobody wants to work with a jerk. That's no. bottom line. No. <laughs> even I mean, you don't even have to kiss nobody's butt or nothing, but just be able to get along with other people. That means a lot, man. I mean, you don't have to be best friends with nobody on the road or anything like that, but just get along and be able to be able to, you know, make a good working environment with other people. Right. I mean, that goes with any anything with any job. Sure. Sure. And when I was talking to Brian, he was like, oh, and it's very important to be on time and to be on time and to be on time. <laughs> right, man. For real. People are never people just don't like being on time. I don't understand. I don't understand. And then a lot that. of a lot of gigs too. A lot of cats get because they're cool with somebody too. You know, right? right. <laughs> like yep. that's my boy. I'm gonna put my boy on. You know, it mm -hmm. happens. That's just how it is. Like, why would you go outside of your your circle of friends and people that you already know that are cool and can play and all to to get other cats? I mean, that's just how the how the world turns. Like, I'm gonna put you on, Nick, because we cool and I know you can play. So I'll just be like, hey, Nick, why don't you do this for me? You know, like instead of going out and trying to right, either right, right. audition some cats or whatever like that. I mean, it's cool. Like sometimes we reach out outside of our um, our, our list of friends that we have that we always put each other on with. But, you know, that that's just part of the, part of the business, man. You know, I'd rather put a friend of mine on than, than put somebody that I don't know. And yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm you know I'm wide open right now. So anything you want to send, me, <laughs> let me uh, let me check my calendar real quick. I think I got it. I, I think I'm free for. It. <laughs> <laughs> Dig it. Like recently, I'm I'm I've been helping uh, put TLC's music together, their their shows, and um, I'm acting as like a co MD with my boy Rex Salas, who actually was the music director for Janet when I first came in in the band, and um, he does music directing from Los Angeles for the girls. Like he'll help. Uh, get the set list and all that stuff together if they want to add stuff or program new things and then what they do is send it to me here in Atlanta says they're all here we rehearse here and the whole nine and I just take on whatever they started and finish it basically right. you know just putting the icing on the cake and you know keeping their making the arrangements and things like that in the show so you know that that's my job a lot with you know MDing on the side of being the drummer. Right. So now you know I have to you know recommend some cats to fill in for me for this summer because my record's coming out soon mm -hmm. and I, I can't. They're going to Australia soon and Japan. So you know I, there's some cats around here in Atlanta that I've been seeing a lot lately and I'm like I'm gonna put this cat on because he's good and and I, I think I can trust the fact that he's gonna be professional on the road because sure. if I if I recommend you. Don't mess up because, yeah, you know, it's, it's making me look bad, you know, <clears throat> man. I got a friend from from I grew up with him and he, when we were younger, I got him two jobs. First one he did and he like messed it up. And then second one, he messed it up. And then he tried to he was like, can you get me another? I'm like, dude, I'm done getting you jobs. <laughs> right. I'm like, you're making, making me look, me look bad. bad. Yeah, you're making me look like an idiot. Right. Because, like, you know, the recommendation is, is an extension of you. Sure. You know, sure. so even these younger guys that I like to put on some of these gigs, I know they can't handle it yet because they're not business minded yet and they're not 
professional enough to for me to trust that if I send them out there overseas or wherever, they're not yeah, gonna man. mess up. You know, they're not gonna get lost or something. You know, like right. that. It that take it takes a lot of that. I take a lot of that into consideration when I'm trying to recommend somebody to to either fill in for me or just to put somebody on. You know, a gig. It's still, you know, just because it's music doesn't mean it's it's not business. You know, like yeah. I, I was talking to Russ Miller yesterday, and he goes, "It's not the music hang with your friends; it's the music business." Right. This you is know, a business. You, you got to treat it like a business. Absolutely, it's a lot of money at stake, and mm -hmm. you know, like it goes from the top all the way to the to the bottom of the important people. You know, like Absolutely. you're dealing with agencies, you're dealing with managers and promoters and. It's not just about you, the drummer, you know, like right. nobody really cares at the end of the day about <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> right. and what you got going on. It's really you're just a team member, you know, right. that of course they need you because you're you know, that's your position. And it's a big position in, in the band to be the drummer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got to you got to handle that with care. Sure, sure. And and your reputation will precede you. My, my reputation has followed me all these years. I think I've been touring for 25 years now and. My reputation is what it is. Like, if you say my name in, in the industry, it's good, you know, and then my work ethics and everything. Everybody knows what, what they're going to get when they hire little John, you know, not to speak, you know, third person. But no, that, you know, you're you're the way the fact that you've been touring for 25 years and that everybody has good things to say about you speaks volumes to your professionalism. Not only that the guys that when i interview guys they talk about you as their influence i promised brian that i would tell you that he said that you are one of his main influences and he said he's probably not going to believe me but it's the truth so i'm <laughs> telling you that for brian and spanky said the same thing and there was some another, somebody else that i was interviewing that said that you were one of their main influences too and that speaks volumes to what your professionalism you're playing and just the type of person you are because if you were a jerk they'd be like man yeah i don't really like that <laughs> yeah. right well, I'm honored, man. I'm honored to have, you know, had some input in some of these guys' careers, man. I'm I'm really proud of these guys and Brian the same way. Like I'm like I said when we were growing up, we basically were like the two drummers in Philly that was doing everything, you know. Right. So right. it was like, you know, it was it was it was good competition at the same time, but it didn't get to the point where we were like, you know, hating each other. You know, right. we, right. we were we were, you know, we're different. Me and Brian are two different characters, you know, but um, you know, it works like he does what he does. I do what I do. And we both respect each other for what we do. Sure. And then Spanky, that's like our, our little, little, little brother that was following us around, you know, yeah. you know, and I used to teach him in my basement back in the day, you know, mm -hmm. his dad would bring, bring him over and, you know, I'd show him things and he was just so eager, man. And, and he just sucked everything up. Like everything I showed him, everything Brian showed him. Everything that some of all these other guys, you know, showed him, he just took it all in and and just flipped it ten times around, you know. Right, right, right. And now, and now all these cats under Spanky are following his lead now and following his style of playing and stuff. And I, it's it's just great to see a pattern like that and to see a legacy being passed down like that. It is, man. It is. But the one thing I want to touch on the one thing you were talking about TLC. I never realized when it was out uh, how that uh the waterfalls groove yeah dude that I, I listened to that a couple years ago and like listened to it again with like a, kind of a new set of ears i was like man this groove is killing organized noise man man it's it's like i didn't you know when it when it first came out i was younger and i was just like you know it was a pop tune to me and then i we actually almost covered it for my record with johnny de francesco oh wow because we were just going through it and we're like man this is this is a killer y'all didn't do it no, no. Y'all should do that, man. Well, like I was I was organ? worried about the rights for it. Oh honestly. yeah, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, man, I don't want to, you know, I don't. It'd be different if it was like some nobody band, you know what I mean? But it's right. TLC. I'm like, well, I'm gonna have to pay for this. Yeah, man. And there I wasn't mean, they, there was there wasn't money in the budget for it, so they even have uh, issues with their own publishing with that. <laughs> like we deal with so much with their you know the the rights to their songs because so many people have their hands in the pot like i mean producers from dallas to organized noise and rick shepherd and all the guys that you know had input in you know tlc's music you know we we have to deal with a lot of licensing issues you know just from past stuff you know and there was issues out. in the beginning was where they had like they were selling millions and millions of records and they were broke and they weren't making any money 
Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's yeah. a whole nother side of it, you know, just with the manager, you know, with Pebbles and whoever else they were dealing with. But yeah, but, the, but the song licenses are, are so complicated because if you have multiple people writing these songs, you know, one person could shut down a whole thing and just say, no, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want right. the song being played. This is how much money I want if y'all use it. You know, it's just... It can get real tricky, you know, and then some cats just, you know, they just want to be butt buttheads about it and, you know, just give people a, a difficult time. I don't know why, but I mean, and they could be making money because, you know, they're sitting at home and, and not doing much anyway. So why not make a check off of, you know, a, a song being played on VH1 or something like that? You know, right. why yeah. not? Why not get that residual money? But they just try to make it difficult. Sure. But I think it sucks. But it that's what happens a lot. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So now you you mentioned that you're doing the stuff with TLC. What else what else do you have going on and what's the what's the future looking like for you? Man, the future for me is now I'm coming out pretty much as a tech you know, technically saying speaking an artist. Mm -hmm. So now I have a record coming out June third. It's called The Heartbeat. And um, you know, I know some people have been seeing a lot of posts and things about it on social media and all like that. Like we're we're gearing up to releasing it. There's one single that's out right now that's a free download. It's called Get Right, and you could get that off my website, www.liljohnroberts.com. And, um, <clears throat> and I'll also, I'll link, to, um, I'll link to this on the show notes, so you would be at drummersresource.com forward slash session 39 when this comes out. So the people can go there, and they'll be able to get to your website. They'll be able to get to all your social media stuff. Um, and then once the album comes out, I'll put the album on there as well. So I, I'll get people... Uh, get people going to your website, man, so they can check this out. Cool. Thank you, man. So yeah, this is a, this is a new phase in my life. I'm 42 now, Nick. So <clears throat> I've done pretty we'll, much. We'll everything. cut that. We'll, we'll cut that part out. Nah, I don't <laughs> care. No, I'm proud of my nah, age, I'm just kidding, man. man. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I've, um, done a lot of things playing drums and now this is going to show more of my producing side. Like, you know, just it's not even a drum record, but, you know, it's some cool drums tracks, you know, that I, I'm pretty proud of. You know, I, I like what I did on it. And um, but the next record that I do after this, I'm going to definitely stretch out and do more drum playing and and, you know, just opening up a little more and things like that, just making it more a drum friendly record. But this record, I wanted to do good songs and produce, you know, some nice tracks and all like that. I collaborated with a lot of folks. Music Soul Child's on there, Stokely nice. from Mint Condition. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these are my friends. Um, Robert Glasper did an interlude with me. Derek Hodge played on it. James Poyser played on it. Uh, me and Chris Dave did a song together on drums. <clears throat> um, and, and when you hear that song, if you think about me and Chris Dave playing together, you're probably going to think like, okay, these guys just went nuts. That's exactly <laughs> what I was just thinking. <laughs> but really, we, we really went in and just played because like when me and, and cats like chris or eric harlan or cat or brian or spanky or any cats that i'm cool with that you know we get playing together and when i say playing together that means when you sit down on two different drum sets you're not trying to compete with each other you're actually trying to make music together so when me and chris play together every time me and chris we've been friends since we were teenagers like mint condition early days you know, we did shows together. I was with Escape back then. Mm -hmm. And we met actually on stage. The, the first time we met was at Soundcheck. And we both had our drums set up. We were tuning our stuff up. And then we just started playing. And all of a sudden, having a whole conversation through drums. You know, like, hmm. okay, let me see if you if he can play a 9-8. Let me see if he can play a 5-4. Let me see if right. he can, you know. We were kind of challenging each other. And then by the end of that Soundcheck, because it was pretty much a drum Soundcheck the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> we uh we got off each other's drum sets and just hugged each other. I was like, what's up, man? I'm Chris Dave. I'm Lil John. What's up? And we've been friends ever since. But just as an example, when we play together, we make music. We're not trying to see who's the better drummer between the two of us. We both have different styles and we both respect it, you know. Mm -hmm. And um when we went in the studio, man, it was and Pino Paladino played bass on it. Nice. Um we went in with just the double drums, Pino. A trumpet player, his name is Melvin Jones. He's an awesome trumpet player that lives in Atlanta. And um, one of my boys played effects. I was like, we don't want no chords, nothing like that. We just want bass, drums, trumpet, soloing, kind of like Miles, kind of bitches brewish style. 
but like with the beats that me and Chris were playing on top of it. And then once we once we laid that track, which turned out to be a one take all the way through, and I said, oh my God, this is, this." when I listened back to it afterwards, I was like, this is a song and I gotta do something with this. Like the whole performance is a song. So what I did, I added some cats in, Eric Roberson, I sent it to him. And um, it started out, I, it's a whole story with it, but it started out with me sending different clips to, to cats and like, hey man, Adam what stuff. you think? Yeah, what you what you hearing on this? So Eric Roberson wrote a chorus to it. He wrote a hook, then he wrote a verse. And then I said, oh man, I gotta cut this up a little bit. So I cut the first part of the song up to make it more sound like, more like a hip hop, you know, <clears throat> Uh, structure so it's 16s and eights and all mm -hmm. and then by the middle of the song music comes in and he sings his part because he's like he heard this bridge and he's like man i want to do something at this part right here so this is how the whole song came together and by the time that bridge came in the rest of the song was the rest of the jam that me chris and pino and melvin had done with the session is that the one that's on your website no, it's not out yet. It's called okay. Space. But that's going to be the first single that comes out right before the record comes out, like the week before. No, I mean, because there's a video on here of, of you, Chris Dave, Pino, Melvin Jones. Yes, that's yeah. that session, but okay. that's not the song. But that's okay. one of the okay. songs that we were doing in the recording. Because that we did all of that stuff in one session. We did we had like three or four hours that, you know, Chris and Pino were in town with D'Angelo. And we were hanging out, and, they, and everybody was like, "Man, we got we we should go play somewhere or something." I said, "Man, better yet, let's go record something." Yeah. You know. And I'm like, I'm trying to work on my record right now, so what's up? So I, I rented some studio time. We took all the gear in there, and that's how that song came about. You know. So we yeah, we had about three or four hours, and we just did as many vibes as we could. You know. And that one particular one is the one that's on the record, though. Nice. Yeah, man. So yeah, this this record is going to be more um, a showcase of what I can do as a producer dr slash drummer. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. called the Heartbeat, and that's coming out June third. Yeah, and, uh, and I guess it'll be available everywhere, right? Yeah, man. That's cool. uh, with Purpose Records out of New York. That they're doing my. I I've struck a distribution deal with Purpose Records. Great. So there's some really good cats. Cool. So, mm -hmm. so the best way to get in touch with you, if people want to reach out or find more information about you or download some music and everything, just go to your website, your website, right? Yeah. My website is cool. And then all of my social media is under at little John Roberts, L I L J O H and Roberts. Yep. Okay. And like I said, I'll link to all that, um, on, on our page as well on drummersresource.com. And do you teach, do you teach privately or no? When I have time, I do get with students. Um, and then there's times when, you know, I just, Sometimes I'll even just hang out with some of the drummers, especially like in Atlanta, if I have a day off or something. I don't really have a lot of time to hang out much lately. Right. Um, but when I do, I do like to get with the drummers that are here, that are up and coming. You know, this cat's like Devin Sticks Taylor. He's ridiculous. He's here. Um, Leon Cottrell, one of the drummers that I actually um, got on to play for me for TLC this summer. Mm -hmm. um, he's here. Um, uh, LeBron, this is a cat named LeBron that plays here. I mean, it's a bunch of young up and coming drummers here that I like to try to hang out with, and you know, they they keep me they they keep me up on my toes, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I like that challenge, and then they like the fact that I come hang out with them and we play together. Jordan Hemby, that's another drummer. He plays with me on a Tuesday night here in Atlanta. We play double drums together, and yeah. I just see a lot of these cats, and I see where I can help them mm -hmm. develop. And, um, you know, get their business mind straight early now because they're all like 20 some years old, you right. know. So I'm trying to help them, you know, get their get their stuff together early. Nice. But I do take students on, you know, when I have the time. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, John, I appreciate this, man. Thank you so much for uh, for taking all this time to chat with me, man. It was definitely informative. I know the listeners uh, definitely enjoyed hearing about all these stories and everything. And would love to have you back on the show. It's like when the when the record comes out, we should we should bring you on and talk about that as well. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me, man. I, I, you know, the guys told me about it, Brian and Spanky and all the guys told me about, you know, your your uh, show. So it's really cool, man. I'm glad you reached out to me. Oh, man, I'm glad that they they uh, they told you about it. I'm glad that, that you did this, man. I really do appreciate it. It's an honor. Pleasure, man. Cool, man. And I'll be talking to you soon. And uh, again, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. All right. See you, man. All right, bro. Man, I feel like I could just keep listening to that interview over and over again. Lil John has 
tons of information and the humility and and just the eagerness to to share the knowledge is something that I that I really love about him and you know a lot of people try to keep that close to the chest and don't don't want to share all this information and so I'm just really glad that you did and be sure to thank him he's on Twitter and you can visit his website lilljohnroberts.com just go on there and just tell him how much you appreciated him coming on the show the guy's a living legend and I I really just I'm so glad that he took the time out to do that interview Visit us at drummersresource.com or facebook.com forward slash drummersresource. We're also on Instagram at drummersresource, and you can find us on Twitter at drummersrsource. And if you want to increase your chops and independence fast, download the ebook Stick Control Variations. It's a $9.99 value. You can get it 100% free if you sign up for the email list at drummersresource.com. And until next week, thank you so much for listening. Keep on drumming, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Peace.